This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Welcome to episode number 93, recorded on December 17th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm here along with my co-host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brenda. We are joined today by Dr. Remus Ortensa, who is currently in Seattle, Washington, uh, and working for Seattle Children's Research Institute and the University of of Washington, and also uh, working uh, now for uh, Caring Cross. And the title of today's uh, podcast, Cure Works and Caring Cross, Pathways to Advance Cell and Gene Therapy. And we will hear with regards to his journey uh, through many years of work in developing gene and cellular therapy for childhood cancer, and now advancing that into non-cancer therapeutics. Starting with uh, his PhD in Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, He then transitioned to faculty at Medical College of Wisconsin, then worked at the Pediatric Oncology Branch at the National Institutes of Health, and as as a scientific director for Lentigen Technology, affiliated with Milteni Biotech Company. And then for the last five years has been at Seattle Children's Research Institute as director of the Ben Town Center for Childhood Cancer Research, a position he just recently transitioned to to take the position at Caring Cross uh, in a greater time commitment. So we are delighted to have Remus here with us today. We're delighted to hear about this journey and exploding field of cellular gene therapy and immunotherapies for childhood cancer and the role that they may have in our future. And also know that there's challenges and opportunities here with advancing such technologically uh, advanced therapies, uh, but the promise is huge. So welcome, uh, Remus, to the podcast. Uh, And I would love to just have you introduce for the audience really how the field has grown and advanced and exploded over the last uh, many years, what you have seen as the biggest advances, but also some of the biggest challenges in cellular immunotherapies in pediatric oncology and pediatrics in general. Well, thank you, Brenda and Tim. Great to be here with you and part of this podcast. As you were giving the introduction, I was reflecting on the field and actually what's happening here in Seattle and what's happened here in Seattle reflects a little bit of what's been going on in the field. So uh, here at the Bentown Center for Childhood Cancer Research, which is one of the centers within the Seattle Children's Research Institute, uh, we have a new director, Minyan Lo, who's taking over this uh, center as well as the clinical direction of the hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplant division. 
in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And at the Ben Town Center, we've taken a turn towards basic science because CNS malignancies are now one of our major challenges. And we've just had a really a fantastic class of new recruits. We have four new investigators and most of them are uh, looking at CNS malignancies. Now that said, this is Seattle. So we have a special focus on uh, immunotherapy and CAR T cell based immunotherapy. And our division gave birth to what is known right now as Seattle Children's uh, Therapeutics. And that is the shop that Mike Jensen set up. So he has about 50 people over there, both research laboratory and clinical CAR T cell production uh, facility for directly doing the phase one, two trials that we do here at Seattle Children's. And many of those uh, projects are directly sponsored by what I would you would call corporate or pharma Actually, they're mid-sized biotechnology companies because CAR T-cells have been successful. You asked me what are one of the biggest advances. One of the biggest advances, especially in childhood leukemia, is the success of the CD19-specific CAR T-cell therapies and the follow-on therapies like the CD22-based CAR T-cell therapies. Um, less than 10 years ago, these were just you know sparkles in investigators' eyes, wondering if CAR T-cell therapy could ever work. But now we have a stable of approved products for both CD19 and now also in, on the adult side for BCMA. So I don't, uh, I think the discussion coming out of the most recent uh, ASH meeting, the American Society for Hematology meeting, was moving up CD19 based CAR T cell therapy into second line therapy and perhaps even being competitive with stem cell transplantation as follow-on for re relapse and refractory disease. So it's a very rapidly moving landscape. And I think what's happened here at our institution, this bifurcation between a very almost pipeline-based uh, production of a CAR T-cell pipeline, where we have CAR T-cells for CD19, CD22, combined CD19 and 22, and we have a stimulator cell, which is kind of, we call an artificial energy presenting cell to keep the CD19 CAR T-cells going. So we have a leukemia service going for the uh, childhood leukemias. And then in solid tumors, we have three different CAR T cells that are just being evaluated and patients are just being enrolled for uh, CD276, for uh, uh, EGFR and for HER2. And then as I mentioned, this new focus on CNS oncology and how we can make an impact in CNS oncology, uh, we have three open trials where the CAR T cells are being directly infused into the CNS so these are called the brainchild uh, family of uh, uh, clinical studies. And it's some of the same specificities like HER2 and uh, B7H3 and EGFR, the M806 specific epitope of EGFR. Um, but these are very exciting times and perhaps we're starting to see some signals in CNS oncology as well. So I think the challenges are now that we have proof of principle, especially in the hematologic malignancies, how do we make these therapies more accessible and in the more scientifically challenging arenas, how do we identify new targets, especially in solid tumors? And will we really get a viable clinical signal in CNS oncology? So that was a, a mouthful, but I, I thought that <laughs> the changes that happen here in Seattle, this kind of more yeah. advanced CAR T vision of how you make a pipeline within an institution, uh, as well as a more turned focus on the kind of developmental biology side, the solid tumor biology side, and trying to learn more about the CNS malignancies and perhaps their susceptibilities to new therapies. So 
in a nutshell, that's what's been going on here in Seattle, which is quite a bit. So I think what it exemplifies for me is there's sort of the scientific side of really developing the therapies, developing the targets, understanding the biology of the disease, which is very different between leukemias, brain tumors, and, and CNS. And then the actual um, implementation of the therapy and the challenges of just delivering the therapy. And, and, and can you speak to once you have that therapy, what are the challenges of growing it outside of a single institution? So if you're trying to, you know, make it more accessible, how would you describe the, the challenges of moving it beyond the Seattle walls, so to speak? Great question. And I think uh, one of the buzzwords that we often use is accessibility. How do we make what could be a potentially curative therapy, especially in hematologic malignancies, more accessible to patients? The large pharma answer of that is a central manufacturing model uh, and the generation of approved products. Now, those approved products are very expensive and they have their own you know, pipeline and availability issues. It's not everyone who needs a CAR T-cell can get a pharma product, whether it's because of the price or whether it's uh, the ability of pharma to actually meet the demand in some cases. And sometimes it's the ability of, of payments to be made. And when you're looking at about a $400,000 therapy, there's lots of challenges. Um, the most recent challenge, it's directly related to cost and it's not specifically in, in malignancy, but I think uh, Bluebird Bio just dropped out of the European market for a beta globin vector which is a potentially curative therapy for sickle cell disease because they could not agree on a price point with the European Medicines Authority. So I won't go into the actual numbers, uh, but they thought if they came in at a lower price point in Europe, they couldn't make their money here in the United States. So pricing and accessibility is a huge challenge. Uh, we've tried to address this in a couple different ways. Uh, so here in Seattle, we formed um, an organization or a consortium called um, CureWorks. And what CureWorks is, is an association of five centers. So it's ourselves, uh, British Columbia, UBC, CHLA, Indiana, Children's National, uh, and, and Riley, Indianapolis. And the idea there is to use a common platform or common clinical trial and try and uh, move phase one, two therapies forward and make them available to more children. So this isn't a universal solution, but it is a way to quicken enrollment and to get slightly larger access to children who need them. Now, the challenges of CureWorks have been unexpectedly, uh, or maybe I should have expected, I was just naive from the administrative point of view, are things like uh, indemnification, insurance, and institutional agreements. These can take 12 months. These can take 18 months. So just because we have a group of investigators who have a really cool product and then want to share the same clinical trial among a series of institutions doesn't mean it happens automatically. Uh, it actually takes a lot of negotiation, even if we're getting a, a financial support to create those products, because we do depend in part on philanthropy to make the CureWorks engine run. It's not self-funded at all. Uh, but the philanthropy has indeed allowed us to expand to these different centers and allow us at least to you know, pressure test this model. Our original vision was that we would you know, have this network across the country and grow it quite rapidly. But uh, this is not going to be the case because of the, just the logistics involved have been quite challenging. Um, my other activity, which you mentioned at the very beginning is a new nonprofit that I formed with uh, Boro Dropulich, the co-founder called Caring Cross. And this 501c3 organization seeks to bring down the cost of cell and gene therapy 
uh, internationally, not just nationally. Uh, we want to look at how we can introduce cell and gene therapy into low and middle income countries. So we created a uh, informal collaborative called GGTI. We got a little bit of money from the Gates Foundation and a little bit of money from a few other sources. Um, we also have a grant from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, CIRM, to, create, uh, to help us with some of our projects. And we have uh, uh, some funding also from NIST, the National Institutes of Science and Technology, uh, to create a democratized platform an open source platform for generating lentiviral vectors and adenovirus associated vectors, AAV vectors, to try and have at least a reference point and an open platform to which different investigators can refer to. So the idea of Caring Cross is, let's find out how to make lentiviral vectors, which is a key part of cell and gene therapy, a lot more cheaply and a lot more broadly available, and then empower local manufacturing of cell and gene therapies. So when we do local manufacturing, the hospital, much like the hospital can process cells for bone marrow transplantation, using closed systems, uh, the most widely known commercial one would be the, the Milteni Prodigy, you can create CAR T cells on site. And that empowers the local institution to recover costs, to oversee treatment pathways, and to participate in this curative process. And we just had a paper come out this month uh, in Nature Communications. And uh, uh, Michael Maskan in Moscow, uh, Russia, is actually the first author. And it was driven here in the United States at Case Western by uh, uh, Marcos de Lima and Paolo Caimi and the team there at University Hospitals who have a cell therapy lab. And there we produced cell, uh, cell CAR T cell products in the BMT lab, not in the clean room. And in, in Cleveland, it was for adults with lymphoma, with CD19 positive lymphomas. And in Moscow, Russia, it was for children with ALL. And using the same lentiviral vector, the same device, and very similar platforms for analysis, we got really good results, comparable results in two very geographically disparate regions. So this is uh, you know, our first trial balloon to start uh, creating networks that empower local hospitals, local CAR-T manufacturing facilities to make a big impact on their patient populations and on their regions. Places that have nationalized systems are much more driven to consider costs for CAR-T cell therapy. And I think Spain would be uh, perhaps a leading example. In Spain, there's a national network of locally produced CAR-T cell products for both CD19 and as was recently presented at ASH, uh, also for BCMA CARs. So Spain has decided to generate their own lentiviral vectors kind of at a national level. And they use this uh, Prodigy platform and produce CAR T cells uh, to essentially meet the demands within the country. So, because of the cost, and because of the high, essentially because of the cost, and because of these accessibility issues, because face it, cost does mean accessibility. Um, uh, local place of care manufacturing is one really important solution that get, may get you beyond the limitations of phase one, phase two network. Um, I was struck from Ash, as you know, there was a famous comment from uh, African-American gentleman when the Zuma 7 trial was presented and asked why there were no minority enrollees in a clinical trial that was presented as a plenary. And I think this is just points to the fact that when we just are driven by very high cost, high interventional therapies, unless we very carefully look at diversity and inclusion, it doesn't happen automatically. And when we're looking at these high-priced, high-flying uh, trials that are driven, industry-driven, that get data really, really fast, 
somehow these questions get ignored. So, uh, you know, Caring Cross is very much focused on this justice issue of accessibility. Our first project is going to be sickle cell disease. We're going to uh, use a sickle cell uh, uh, disease vector. Uh, we've licensed or just about to license one from uh, the National Institutes of Health. So it's not a commercial vector, but it's technology developed there. And we have a clinic in uh, Uganda at the JCRC in Uganda, led by Dr. Sisi Kicho, and also in the Christian Medical College in Valora, India, led by Vikram Matthews. And we've been uh, on weekly phone calls for almost a year now to build out a regulatory framework and we have one trainee, and this is the Gates sponsorship that came from Uganda and is sitting in Jenna Dare's lab at the Fred Hutch and is uh, kind of nailing down the technology for CD34 stem cell transduction for, for a beta globin vector. So uh, this is going to take some time, but we believe that closed systems where you don't need a full clean room, but can do kind of just in a BMT-like environment, a clinical lab, clean laboratory environment, uh, cell production, we can start to make accessibility uh, uh, maybe a challenge of the past. At least that's our vision, right? We're just taking our first steps. Remus, that was an incredible um, uh, amount of information you just unloaded on us. And I think we could probably ha have another 20 podcasts on the 10 different topics you just brought up. So thank you for all that. Um, I, a lot to unpack is what I'm saying. Um, and I know I, I, I saw firsthand here what you're talking about when Dean Lee was able to set up CAR-Ts for 20 grand instead of the you know, yes. hundreds of thousands that it costs by doing using these closed system devices on site. I guess I, what about, so we all know Donna Ludwinski from Solving Kids Cancer recently published this paper in the Journal of Clinical Oncology telling the tale of you know, anti-GD2 antibody drug development and the woes that came about from doing a lot of clinical trials in the academic setting that were then not really fit for regulatory purposes. So how do you see this new distributed model of production and testing in academic labs uh, moving to the market? Tim, that is a great question. And that is actually something we think about most every day. How do you move into a regularly, regu regulatory framework when you're doing local production, even if you have the same platform and the same vectors for making your CAR T cells? So uh, Peter Marks and Janet Woodcock at the FDA have made public remarks about this. They're looking for a regulatory pathway. I'll comment on that in a moment. In the United Kingdom, uh, the regulatory agency there actually has open comments right now for regulation of distributed manufacturing for place of care or point of care manufacturing of T-cell products. So the United Kingdom is moving forward. Right now they're gathering information from stakeholders and they will issue recommendations. I don't know if it will be in the coming year, but I, I suspect within a year, the UK, again, in a managed care setting is looking for ways to bring down cost and they see this as part of their future. Um, what we're considering is, and this seems to be in sync with some of the comments from the FDA, is that there would be a lead institution or a single coordinating site that would, I wouldn't say manage, but network the distributed manufacturing capabilities. Hopefully we can do this with the uh, Alpha Clinic system within uh, the state of California, which is something that's sponsored by CIRM. But let's say that our on the horizon would be networking 
five or six hospitals. They would be reporting into one central site. Uh, it may actually be the Caring Cross site. We may actually be the regulatory coordinator. And then uh, once the initial trial gets going, the data would be reported into that one site. And that one site would then do a yearly report into the FDA. So the FDA, the last thing the FDA wants to do is to regulate, you know, 300 cell production facilities. They just can't do it. But if you can demonstrate as you build out a network, uh, reproducibility of products, quality really is what it's about, and product safety, then you, you can say, okay, these patients are receiving a, a well-regulated product. Um, as you know, in stem cell transplantation of bone marrow transplant, it grew up organically. And it's not really regulated or reported in, but we don't have that added step of genetic manipulation. So I think the FDA really wants to keep hold of that while that's still going on and still a new science and to make sure that we have the follow-up because once a patient receives a gene-modified product, the goal is 15 years of follow-up. So we have to be able to follow those patients for a long time. So I think uh, per indication or per platform, there will be a central coordinating center and that coordinating center will allow uh, the data to be, to be gathered. We are going to benefit a lot here by technological advances in the cell manufacturing platforms. So let's say we can do, like we do a sterility test, we can also do a product qualification test. So whether it's percentage of T cells express CAR-T or maybe a real-time assessment of the CAR-T activity. So then we have an idea that the FDA loves the word potency, I always, shy away from it since we're, we're creating living drugs that do their potent thing once they're inside the body. But whatever the minimally agreed uh, 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 product characteristics would be, if they could be reported in, in an automated fashion, much like we report in sterility, that data is then not you know, as liable to get lost in the cracks. So part of setting out the regulatory framework is a reliable reporting in of the data and then reporting up into the FDA uh, on the timeframes and, and uh, kind of in the, with the metrics they would require. So it's a developing regulatory science. It's gonna be really uh, important at this point. Well, and the other, the other piece you brought up uh, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'll point out that ASCO just came out with a statement and a guideline and pointed that very, made that very same point that what you test in one set of patients may not be applicable to another set and yet you really need to uh, have proactive efforts to recruit a diverse cadre of, of, of research subjects in order to be able to, you know, make broader statements about the applicability when in the market. So that's a really, really important point. So I appreciate you bringing that up as well. Yeah, I would just always make, uh, so there's, uh, we always bring up the scientific point of, of diversity and inclusion, the genetic diversity of our patient populations. You know, I think there's also a kind of uh, a justice issue that, you know, our trials, all this initial science was funded by the American taxpayer here in the U.S., right? And if we don't include all the communities that are here in the U.S., and one of our Caring Cross projects is actually a CAR T-cell therapy for HIV that uh, is approved. It's about to start at UCSF and UC Davis. So, if and, and the HIV community is fantastic about uh, uh, having patient advocacy present at the start of any new trial, uh, we lose touch with, with the populace and then the populace loses touch with science. And then why would 
why would the populist trust science if it's not seen as being inclusive and representing the entire population? I'm, I don't want to immediately bring in our, our disconnect between COVID science and, and acceptability of vaccination, but we always run that challenge, especially when we're doing cell and gene therapy. You know, we're taking someone's cells, we're manipulating them, we're giving them back in, they've been changed genetically. And we have to do a really good job of outreach and education. So I think inclusion includes uh, not just genetic diversity, which is important, not just ethnic, but this idea of all people need to be part of this process. Uh, it's, it's a medical education at the, its most grassroots level. Uh, there's going to be pushback sooner or later. And there's also going to be confusion. Uh, the, the WHO is holding workshops right now on germline modification. Uh, because of CRISPR and because of some of the experiments that uh, gone, had gone on last year in China, right, where there was potentially germline modification, uh, knocking out the CXCR5 gene in, in quote, embryos. So uh, we have to bring the public along. We have to keep the public's comments front and center, or else we're going to lose touch again and run into, we, we, we do this at our own peril if we don't have diversity and inclusion. And Thank you. I think there are so many issues, as Tim said, for us to unpack in this and so many ways we could kind of, you know, the, carry the conversation. And one of the key things I'm wondering if you could highlight is that there, there, this has exploded in the last decade, this field um, of cellular and gene therapy. And, and as you said, leukemia clearly far out front. What do you think in a very tangible way in the next year, the next three, the next five years are key changes that would need to be made to advance the field in other pediatric cancers and, and diseases that are critical? Like if you had to pick one, two, three things that are tangible things. What would those I, be? I would give everyone a recommendation to somehow find Dr. Crystal Makel's talk from the uh, SITC meeting this year. She gave the Richard Smalley Award lecture, which was stunning because it included basic science advances on a very old car, the anti-GD2 car, but using the anti-GD2 car through direct intracranial injection, which Stanford is doing as well as Seattle, and actually seeing some perhaps shrinkage of DIPG, right? Diffuse midline granulomas. Uh, it used to be diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, but now they change it to DMG. So, so DIPG is universally fatal. We've yes. never seen anything ever work, right? And we have actually what may be a clinical signal. It required a lot of basic biology about how to improve the CAR T cell, how to make it exhaustion proof, and then how to actually administer it. And so it's a long arc of learning how to create the products. One of the things Crystal stressed was that we don't even know enough about solid tumors with regards to the biology of the lesion. We haven't done enough research on what are the different targets that we can identify. Um, I hate to you know, tout another paper, but actually it's been a good month, like two months ago, uh, uh, Javed Khan and Andrew Broll put out a paper in Cell Reports which updated our old paper in, in Frontiers in Pediatric Oncology, where you, we use gene chips to identify cell surface proteins uh, present on the uh, cell surface of pediatric solid tumors. This is now next-gen genomics. It's in, it's in Cell Reports, November 2021. It's a fantastic paper uh, looking at 
targets across the board. Uh, lots of them are unknown or unvalidated. We don't know if they're good targets or bad targets. And in my own research, I'm showing that if, unless you push back the myeloid suppressive environment within the solid tumor, the CAR T cell doesn't work. It's in mouse models, but unless we uh, reverse myeloid-derived suppressor cells, and especially M2 macrophages in the case of rhabdomyosarcoma, which seems to be part and parcel of this murine model that I'm studying, uh, the CAR T cells don't work. So it's a more complex biology when we look at the solid tumor lesions. So we have to keep those advances coming at the kind of tumor biology level. What is the biology of this tumor? It's not just the same thing as sitting in a tissue culture dish that we look at and you know we can easily kill. We can make CAR T cells to kill tumor cells. Kind of in the old days, you know, we've cured cancer a hundred times in mice. I mean, so I've made CAR T cells that have killed every major pediatric tumor, right? They go into the go, they go into the patient and and it's taking a really long time to see any type of signal, but it takes a long time to refine and do the human tumor biology to really learn what these lesions are. So I, I think there's tons of room for, for discovery of the basic immunobiology of what is a solid tumor lesion because it's quite complex. Um, I, the, the last SITSI meeting was actually really, really interesting. And just even we, we mentioned, you know, Donna's paper, the development of the anti-DD2 uh, antibody as part of neuroblastoma therapy. Um, just the timing of these uh, checkpoint blockade inhibitors is super, super important. So Andy Weinberg from uh, uh, OHSU presented data, right, with the OX40 agonist antibody plus anti-PD-1, the checkpoint blockade. And of course, if you give it, you know, you take off a break and you add an accelerator, which is the anti-PD-1 plus the OX40, you should get twice the effect but actually they got a much worse effect than either agent alone, which shows that you can't turn off PD-1 before you turn on the T cell. You have to wait till the T cells in the lesion and then block those negative signals. So very, what would seem like obvious A plus B equals C does not happen unless we understand the biology of how a T cell gets to a tumor lesion and then starts to do anti-tumor effects. Um, you know, I think we talked systemically about whether it's gonna be pharma, being forced to bring down the prices to better accessibility, whether it's you know academic or other networks, um, uh, you know there's a clinical trials network and there's COG and they're developing some AML cars that will take some time to develop, but they're coming, or whether it's you know not in profits like Caring Cross that are trying to drive down the cost through place of care manufacturing and bringing down the cost of the individual reagents, the individual steps, and creating regulatory pathways to use them so they're in a provable manner. Um, so I think uh, we have regulatory science to improve as well as basic science to improve. Well, you've given us a lot of a lot to think about, but also I think a lot of hope in terms of progress being made, identifying the barriers, identifying ways to overcome it, but also recognizing the age-old adage that you know science is not linear and it's not predictable, and we you have to do things and try them out, test hypotheses, and adjust your theories as you go. So and continue to make progress. So appreciate that, that overview of, of this complex field and also giving us that hope. Brenda, do you have any final questions or comments? I would just like to thank Rumus for a fascinating discussion and one that um, has so much in it that um, we need to have you back for more conversation and overcoming these barriers because I think cell and gene therapy is here to stay. Uh, it's gonna be part of our future and we have to figure out how to incorporate it into the care of children with cancer. So thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed it. 
I love the field of pediatric oncology. Uh, it's the most collaborative and it's science-based, but it's also patient-focused and, and there's no better field to be in. Well, and, and congratulations, not only on all your progress in science, but what you're doing now with trying to ease the burdens and, and improve the access and, and all that. I mean, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, do you have 10 clones of yourself working in parallel? Uh, because it sounds like a tons of work, but congrats on all that. It's teamwork. That's yeah, it's always teams, platforms Team. and partnerships, as as Mike McCune always teaches me. So. Teamwork's the dream work. And uh, for this podcast, we have the team at Solving Kids Cancer to thank. As, as our listeners hopefully know well by now, it's a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving the survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.